0: Hello, and welcome to The Cove, the home of the Australian profession of arms. In this occasional podcast, I'm gonna be talking to Professor Jim Storr. Jim joined the British Infantry, the King's Regiment, in 1981, as a young second lieutenant. And he's gone on not only to have a military career, but now an academic career. His first book, The Human Face of War, is a fascinating study of the interaction between humans and warfare. And quite frankly, his analysis of surprise and the analytical data he uses to uh, expand on what can sometimes be a a rather uh, fluffy subject um, should be recommended reading for all manoeuvre armed commanders. Well, Jim's written a new book. It's called The Hall of Mirrors, War and Warfare in the 20th Century and he joins me here now. Jim, good morning. Good morning. So um, the the basis of the book is on uh, the fact that actually the 20th century uh, was, throughout, was industrialised warfare from almost the beginning of the century all the way through to the end. And that there are a are lot of lessons that can be learnt from it. Yeah, absolutely. The 20th century
1: is probably the most violent century of all time, as far as we can tell. You start in a period when we're beginning, we're beginning to have industrialised scale of warfare. You can, you can argue the start date, if you like. But also, and what I think is very important is 20th century is the first century of air warfare. First man flight, 1903. And air warfare affects warfare generally in a way which no previous century ever does. And the other thing in terms of writing a book is the period has a start and an end. So you can actually write a book about it quite
0: easily. And so um, within the book you, uh, you go through chronologically to begin with. And what are some of the highlights that as you were doing the research for this, what were some of the almost eureka moments that you suddenly saw some themes or some trends um, that developed throughout the century? One of the things that that surprised me enormously is that historians miss things. Um,
1: Without going into the detail, but I can if you want me to, Um, German strategy 1917. Apparently there isn't any, apart from the fact that Germany declares unrestricted submarine warfare right at the beginning of the year. Are we really suggesting that the German army, the army... Trained in its Clausewitz, brought up by Moltke the Elder, the army that believes you can only win a war by attacking, not only chooses to do nothing in 1917, but doesn't choose to do anything. But that's apparently what the history
0: says. Surely there's an anomaly there, surely there's something missing. And so um, as you go through the chronological sequences, warfare... In some ways, um, in some ways, morphs particularly through the advent of technology. How, uh, did you see any aspects technology um, through air flight? You've already said it's the first century with air warfare. Submarines came to their own, and we we went to the U-boat packs in the Second World War, etc. After the Second World War, there was suddenly an explosion of technology with jet power engines, etc. How did that change the character of war? <coughs>
1: Well, to my mind, it it depends entirely who you speak to. There are some people who really hold to the idea that technology absolutely determines the course and the conduct of war. In other words, you can largely explain what happens and how it happens by the technology in use. Technology is hugely important, of course it is, but I think what people tend to forget is that technology is designed and developed and fielded by people in response to the problems that they identify. So it doesn't just happen. To my mind, the technology is part of the story, and the story is fundamentally a a human one. And if you like, the technology
0: results from there, rather than driving the things. So war, by its very nature, being a human endeavour, technology is simply mankind's way to try and gain an advantage, protect themselves, etc.?
1: Well, yes, and one really good example to that, uh, to my mind, is uh, the atomic bomb. If you look at the Manhattan pro- Project, there is no question that in the 1930s, some, what we would now call atomic physicists, had some idea. What drives the production of the atomic bomb is America and Britain deciding to apply science, and particularly nuclear fission to create a war-winning advantage. Well, isn't that a good example of what I've just said? Yeah, of course it is.
0: So, moving on then, you, after the chronological um, uh, phase, you start looking at the, the different environments, land, maritime and air, I believe. Mm.
1: Well, in fact, I look at four because it, the, the rationale seems to go that way. And I look at regular warfare on land,
0: irregular warfare, which by default always happens on land, then air and then naval warfare. And so. What were some of the trends that you saw change? Because we're, we're in a period now where, for a long time, state-on-state, state, large state actor warfare uh, was, was what we understood war to be. Albeit there were always small wars, so there were colonial wars, etc. But the Cold War was, even though it didn't eventuate with large war between the major powers, you know, deterrence was a strategy, it was state-on-state state conflict. We suddenly get to the 90s and 2000s, and this seems to be turned on its head. First of all, you have sort of responsibility to protect as a doctrine coming out. It was about militaries being the force for good. Um, you've got Hunterdon saying, you know, this is the end of history, et etc. Et and yet today, we're looking at a resurgent Russia, we're looking at a more powerful China, we're looking at um, potentially state-on-state conflict coming back. You only have to look at the Ukraine. So um, how did you find, as you were researching the irregular and the regular parts, was there a pendulum swing in military thought throughout the 20th century? I think there was, uh, there was a swing in thought, but I think there's a, a
1: bigger picture, and if you look at the 19th as well as the 20th century, which is that major warfare is actually quite rare. Um, it's episodic. In the, second, in the 20th century, you have the First World War, and then only 21 years later, you have the Second World War. And they're big. They're the most uh, destructive wars in history. But then that stops. And one way of looking at it, if you just take, for example, the Australian army or the British army, they're fighting wars for 10, 11, 12 years in total. I I'm thinking not least of Vietnam, however you categorise that. But that's only 10, 12, maybe 13 years out of 100. And if you take certainly the British army, in every year apart from 1969, it's losing some people somewhere. So that's an irregular war apart from, and you do the sums, what is it, 77 years out of, you get the idea. Um, So I think that's the pattern, but the other thing to think about it is that actually irregular warfare is actually moderately inconsequential on a world stage. It's horrible to be involved in a war, an irregular war, let's call it an insurgency or whatever in your country, but it's quite possible that across the border there's a bit of smuggling going on, but the country's at peace. And you see that in places like, well, Vietnam's slightly a bad example, but for a lot of the Vietnam thing from the Second World War through to 1975 or so, just across the border in Cambodia or in Laos, it's not necessarily at war. And certainly if you then go a little bit further to Malaya or somewhere like that, they're at peace. So, as I say, you get these relatively protracted, relatively nasty conflicts which grumble on in countries they're not actually particularly decisive. Witness the fact that, for example, it takes, let's say, 20 years to resolve Vietnam. And they're very localised. So in a, in a very good, in a very strange sense, irregular warfare is inconsequential if
0: you're not in that country at the time. I, su- I suppose that's the paradox, isn't it? We, in the militaries, we tend to look at spectrums of conflict. And quite often, we'll say a peacekeeping mission is at the lower spectrum of end of the spectrum of conflict Mm. yet the the level of violence can be astronomical just look at Rwanda or Bosnia etc.
1: That's very true Um, and the sheer numbers involved because you tend to get very large numbers of people involved with very simple weapons resulting in large numbers of mostly civilian casualties and Mm. grievous patterns of barbarity and I think that's the other thing it's not just that it's Irregular. It's also that it's ill-disciplined in terms of the application of international humanitarian law. And so you get mass slaughter of civilians, um, tribalism uh, at its worst and so on. But the other side of um, irregular warfare, which is worrisome, is it's not even decisive in the country where it takes place. I forget precisely the statistics, they're in the book, but an awful lot of irregular conflicts break out again within the next 10 years, um, so they don't even decide whatever the internal domestic political problem is in that country, or they're relatively unlikely to do so, and so you have wars that grumble on for
0: decades. Uh, you're listening to The Cove, the home of the Australian Professional of arms, and I'm here today with uh, Professor Jim Storr talking about his new book, The Hall of Mirrors, War and Warfare in the 20th Century. So we've, we've spoken about the uh, chronological um, outlay of the, of the book, and then you look at the environmental factor. We spoke about regular and irregular warfare. But as, a, as an infantry officer, you also delved into both air war and maritime war. So after thumbing through um, your Mahan and etc., what were some of, the, um, some of the lessons or some of the trends which came out, um, particularly when you look at what role does land power play in a maritime strategy, which is something we're really looking at in Australia at the moment.
1: Oh, I can quite imagine that. Uh, let's look at it t- two ways around. The first is to look at the pervading, or pervading? Yes, I suppose, roles of um, sea power. And actually they don't change very much. There's, there's five things that navies do, and some navies do very well, um, and they include not least launching armies onto foreign shores. Um, and to pick a good contentious example for you, the Royal Navy does a really good job of putting Anzacs and the Brits and the others ashore at Gallipoli. That doesn't mean to say that we win in Gallipoli, far from it, but the Navy do a good job of putting the army ashore, sustaining it, and then getting it off. So there are things, and it's doing that at the beginning, and it's doing that 60, 70 years later in places like the Falklands, and so on and so forth. So those kind of roles of sea power, if you like, don't change. And the other thing that comes out of if you look at uh, naval warfare, is the fact the benefit of a fleet in being a dominant fleet at the beginning of the war, is still the dominant fleet at the end of the war? That doesn't change. When you look at the big wars, and that includes the Cold War, the U.S. Navy is the dominant fleet in 1947, 1948, and it's the dominant fleet when the uh, the
0: Soviet Union gives up and throws throws tower town. Yes, it takes a long time to build a fleet. It's not just cutting steel and 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 riveting it together to make a dreadnought. I mean, there are entire... uh, It's a systems approach. It's
1: a hugely systems approach, and it's so big and so complex and so detailed that in practice people can't effectively challenge that. Not even the whole resources of the Soviet Union effectively challenged the United States Navy,
0: given the fact it also had um, NATO and other allies. Now let's get on to something potentially a little bit more controversial, which is the role of air power uh, throughout the 20th century. Some people, and obviously in the, in the, uh, in the Second World War, air power itself, the, the use of air power, strategic bombing, came at great costs to, um, to the Allies. 55,000 out of 106,000, I think, bomber command um, were killed. Massive uh, casualty rates. And some would say that air power uh, over the la- at the end of the um, 20th century was almost being used instead of um, strategic policy or strategy. It was the turn-to weapon. Well, a few airstrikes will, will show resolve and willing, but didn't actually. How, how have you seen air power evolve throughout the 20th century, particularly when it comes to its strategic use?
1: Strategic is a difficult problem. Strategic means two things. To someone who's been to an officer academy or staff college. It, to my mind, quite rightly means the application of force at the national level to achieve national goals. So you have strategy, operations and tactics. However, it also is taken fairly loosely to mean the art of the general, meaning what generals or air marshals or admirals do. Now, if you take that approach, and one other thing which is peculiar to airmen, they use the word strategic in a way that you can use the word long-range. So if, for example, you look at the Allied Combined Bomber Offensive in the Second World War and delete strategic bombing and insert long-range bombing, you start to knock away a lot of assumptions that people make. And the simple round terms, as far as I can ascertain, and I have no particular skin in this fight, is that it doesn't work. Uh, The numbers, the maths, the writers some of them are quite famous, who start off by supporting the undoubted effort and bravery and everything else on a massive scale of those air forces, end up eventually saying, yes, but actually it didn't defeat Germany, it didn't defeat Japan. There is an obvious exception, which is that the final act of the defeat of Japan is dropping two bombs on Japan. And there is no question that that resolved the Emperor to instruct his Admirals and his Generals to stop the war. The war was going to stop anyway. Um, To my mind, if you want the single most important step, it's the successful uh, invasion of Okinawa. When the Japanese see that the United States Army can do that, ably supported by its Army Air Force and ably projected ashore by the US Navy, they know that the homeland is going to be invaded and they will lose. Dropping two bombs accelerates the process, but dropping two atomic bombs is an incredibly narrow technological window. I forget exactly how many years later, but the, in simple terms, the Russians throw all of their national resources into catching up, and you've got to a point where atomic bombs are in practice unused for the next 70, 80 years. So, it's I say it's a narrow technological window.
0: Yeah, okay. So... Putting that all together, then you've you've looked through in the book. You looked through the chronological events of the 20th century, a century um, of varying degrees of, of of warfare, from irregular through to you know the, the horrors of the Second World War and a, and our first and thankfully only uh, atomic conclusion, nuclear conclusion to war. What are some of the lessons, some of the conclusions that you've drawn out of out of this, especially for a professional army officer who is who is looking to improve their understanding of the profession of arms?
1: I think one of the things that we all need to do if we are really studying war and warfare, first of all, is be far more rigorous in our terms. I spoke a moment ago about strategic, operational, tactical. Stop using the word strategic in a loose sense. If you mean strategic, you mean something like the application of the nation's resources for the conduct of wars at the national level. Don't use it euphemistically. There's a professor, He's, he's a, a British-based professor, who used to talk about the, strat- the strategy of platoon basing in Afghanistan. <laughs> Related to that is the fact that historians who basically have arts degrees, I'm not criticising the, the fact that they have arts degrees, but their linguistic style, their literary style, tends to avoid repeating words in the same paragraph. So if they use the word strategy once they'll use a euphemism for it later on, or vice versa. Um, Whereas a military man is usually trained to use the word that he means, and if that's bad literary, literary style, then at least we know what he's talking about. So I think that's important. Related to that is winning and losing. Horrendously, I wouldn't even say badly defined, but not defined. How many times do you hear people saying, well, did Britain actually win the Second World War? Well, surely, that that depends enormously on what you mean by winning, particularly at the the level of a war. I think what we should move towards is a a discussion of success and failure. Because you can say what were, in that case, Britain's war aims? Did it succeed in achieving them? Did it fail to achieve them? You can then say, yes, but it's war aims changed. Well, that's a reasonable thing to say in itself. And you can then say how successful did it manage that change and how successful was it in achieving the aims that it had at the end of the war. When you look at it that way, for example, Great War. Britain goes into the war essentially on a strategic defensive posture. It's trying to maintain its status quo and more than anything else, its status quo as just the greatest trading nation in the world. It gets sucked into a massive war and its war goals change, although I don't think anyone really enunciates particularly well what its war aims change into. Except for the fact that there's an expectation that by the end of the war it should have come out more better placed than some of its its, um, opponents. And if you look at Turkey, it does that very well. It basically destroys the Turkish Empire. So when you look at it that way, did Britain win the war well by 1917, 1918? It had a fairly clear or a moderately clear set of goals, and it succeeded in those. So I think that's a better way of looking at that problem.
0: Yeah, and I suppose um, you know, there's a lot of debate at the moment about you know, what does victory mean? And one of the criticisms, I suppose, of the late 20th century is that the first principle of war, the selection and maintenance of the aim, Seems to somehow go awry. The strategic thinking at, at the at the national level, so government and military, seems to suddenly start going wayward. And there doesn't seem to be that long term view. Um, some say that the rise of the media and questioning government um, makes them more responsive to public opinion, etc. But is that something that you've seen? The sort of the, the more wayward or lacking um, selection and maintenance of an AI? I think
1: that's broadly true. I I think that most democracies don't really have a strategy in peacetime. Most democracies aren't good at formulating strategic goals and then applying resources in support of them, because they only really have to do that in big wars. What I would observe, however, is that once Churchill comes to power in Britain, in May 1940, its strategy is enormously better. Uh, Just to dwell on that for a moment, Churchill realises, France effectively having fallen, that the only way to win this war is to bring America into the war. Once it happens because Japan mistakenly attacks America, he said in his diary, oh, so we had won then. Yeah. Which is a kind of strange thing to say when your best ally has just been stabbed in the back. But strategically, actually, he was quite right. He could foresee that America would mobilise, it would, if you like, gird its loins and apply itself, that it would probably a bit, be a bit messy and a bit painful, but in the long run, we would win. So strategically, uh, I think Churchill was right in that, but more to the point, in the way that they organized the various conferences and the staff structures, the Second World War is a lot better than the, than the Great War, but that gets carried into NATO. But then by, let's say, the 80s 90s, but certainly after the end of the Cold War, all of that consciousness, I think, has
0: disappeared. Yeah, and that sort of unity of effort, which Mm. was understood by 1945, tends to splinter away. And you see it, um, albeit this century, in Afghanistan, with every nation having its own red cards, every nation um, having its own chain of commands. And whilst there's a nominal chain of command, we seem to have forgotten... The, the lessons of unity of command, which is one of the principles of war.
1: Yeah, I, I'm always careful. What I'm trying to do is write a book in which I say, well, it started, in my case, I'm going to say the year 1900. Yeah. People argue what the century is. And ends in, let's say, 1999 in the Kosovo Air Campaign. But I think what the book suggests is drifting in that direction. Yeah. And part of the problem, to use um, your um, Brigadier Justin Kelly's remark about or remarks about the strategy bridge, one of the problems is that you can have confident, professionally trained people at the, well, the military end of the bridge, but who are they talking to? They may well, for example, in the, the, the Foreign Office, be professional diplomats, but the ministers themselves aren't Churchill, they aren't Roosevelt. Uh, they don't have that kind of perspective. Mm. Um, and what they fundamentally are is politicians. Now, politicians are many things, but they're not necessarily thinking of the long-term national interests. It's a cliche, I think, but they're far more concerned with the issues of the moment.
0: Yeah, I suppose my final question then, when you've looked at a or you've written a book which looks at war and warfare throughout an entire century, and then you've talked about the importance of precise language, do you believe that our understanding of what war is? is now still valid we hear about cyber wars and we hear about information wars etc I mean how how do you view war having written this book
1: How do I view war? It remains fundamentally human it remains about the application of violence, collective armed violence for the purposes of the state. you have related phenomena such as substate war that 's also conflict and i don't think that for example civil wars are a subset of wars. I think they're all part of the same kind of thing. But I think when most people are talking about war, they're talking about broadly regular warfare for the purposes of the state. And there are other areas of conflict which become, at various times, more or less important. I think that's broadly true. I think as professional military men, we need to understand, first of all, that that spectrum exists, but secondly, to be able to identify fairly firmly where the bottom end is. There is an area at which, in a mature democracy, it's about law and order, it's about policing, sometimes occasionally supporting the police in the maintenance of law and order, but that's not war. But the moment you get to the point where the violence is so uh, widespread and all kinds of other adjectives,
0: you have to realise that that's the domain of the military professional. Professor Jim Storr, thank you very much for joining us today uh, here at The Cove, the home of the Australian profession of arms. Your book, The Hall of Mirrors, War and Warfare in the 20th Century, is out now uh, by Helion, and I highly recommend it to all our listeners. Uh, Jim, thanks very much. Thank you very much.